Well, I want to invite you to take out your Bibles to 2 Timothy. It's in the last 40 or 50 pages in the back of your Bible there. And uh, if you didn't bring a Bible, we say this every week, we have black ones hopefully in a seat rack near you uh, that you can pull out. It says NIV, and if you pull it out, if you turn to page 833, that should get you there. We're going to look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 23 through chapter 3, verses 9 today, 13, 14 verses. And as we look at this, if you haven't been uh, with us, we're in this series called Endure, where this fall, we're actually thinking together as a church, what would it look like uh, if we were to go through uh, difficult times, times of testing, how do we get ready for that uh, so it doesn't take us off guard? And how do we, what are some things we can be learning now uh, that help us uh, be ready for whatever may come? So that's some of how we're studying Second Timothy, this letter that Paul wrote. One of the last letters that Paul wrote before he dies, he writes to a younger associate named Timothy. All right, so um, pizza, maybe? <laughs> All right. Anyway, let's, uh, let's look at this. If you're, if you're following along in the notes, um, this is a sentence we've been trying to review every week. When times of testing come, we must be ready to endure with Christ. When times of testing come, and we'll see in the passage today, they will. We must be ready to endure. We must be ready to persevere. We must be ready to more than just survive, but even be able to thrive with Christ in those times. And uh, again, today, the passage we're going to look at, starting in chapter 2, verse 23, we're going to see that accepting the truth of hard times, if you're following along, accepting the truth of hard times prepares us for opposition. Because, you know, if we don't accept the truth of that, if we, if we're not, if we don't really believe that's going to happen, then we never will get around to preparing. Um, some of you have driven to Florida before from here. And you know that if a person loves you, they'll tell you, you got to drive around Atlanta. <laughs> Amen? I'm telling you what, man, you got to learn how to drive a different way around Atlanta. Uh, maybe 85, 90 miles an hour in case you want to, you know, not die. But it's just an incredible thing. But if someone warns you about that, then you're not as shocked as if no one tells you. And what's waiting on the other side of Atlanta is Florida. And so there's a side of what Paul's saying is, look, I just want to tell you, Timothy, that before we're with Jesus forever, you got to go through some stuff. You got to go through some difficult stuff. Jesus promised us this. I just want to remind you, and we're going to see that in chapter 3, verse 1, especially. So these terrible times, that's the name of this message today. What, what do we make of those? When are those supposed to happen? What's that mean? We're going to look at that all today. And my prayer, the one thing I, I hope this service does, is it just helps us to accept a little bit more realistically that we're going to probably experience some of this, and we need to be prepared for it. And uh, I don't know if you fight this, but this is kind of where I'm starting. There's a side of me that wants to secretly believe that when I trust Jesus, he'll take those away from me and let somebody else go through those. And that, you know, I've, I've experienced so many other good gifts in the United States that maybe we'll just be able to completely miss this too. And there's nothing wrong with desiring to be free of trouble. It's just that if I... If I set myself up all the time where I kind of just go, well, you know, maybe, 
yeah, Lord, you know, if I believe in you, you'll, you won't let me go through that, will you? And he just says, look, I, I want to teach you how to accept that this is going to come even to you. And if you'll do that, then you're going to be able to drive around Atlanta. And you're going to be able to get to Florida and know what I have waiting for you. But I just want you to know both are part of the journey for you. So let me just pray that God will use this time this morning to help us kind of just let this truth sink deeper into our lives. God, I pray that we'll never be a church that preaches just what people want to hear, what we want to hear. I pray we'll preach the truth even when it's challenging. And I thank you for a church family that has been so willing so many times to listen to the truth even when it's challenging. And I pray you'll help us, God, so that by listening to you, we will be prepared for whatever you may allow or take us through. For Jesus' sake, for his glory, and uh, for your people's sake too. Amen. All right, so let's look at this together. I'm going to read verses 23 of chapter 2 all the way to, uh, I'm going to read to about verse 1, which is what I'm going to ask you to read with me. Actually, I'm going to read to verse 5. How's that? All right, so here we go. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. It's talking to Timothy now. Because you know they produce quarrels. Remember we talked about how quarrels sometimes is also used on battlefields where people would shoot arrows back and forth at each other, meant to hurt. Okay? Verse 24. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Now, on the message notes is verse 1 of chapter 3, so we can all read off the same translation. Would you mind reading it out loud with me? But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. And I'll read verse, I'll go further. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, which means traitors, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. Now, what's all this mean? At first, I want to just talk to you about the truth of terrible times. And before I do, out to the right in my notes, I have this phrase, last days, okay, in that spot there. I just put that. Because it says, there will be terrible times in the last days. Now, if you ever want to get a big crowd, tell people you're going to be talking about the last days. There's just something, it fascinates people on TV shows, it fascinates people in churches about apocalyptic times. There's just, all of us have a natural curiosity, don't we? So the question is, when are these last days? Because like I said earlier, wouldn't it be easy if we, if we knew when the last days were, remind me, then I want to avoid those because that's when the terrible times are happening, okay? But I want you to understand that there's uh, something that John Stott says that could help all of us think about the last days. Here's what he writes. Paul refers to the last days. It may seem natural to apply this term to a future epoch, to the days immediately preceding the end when Christ returns. But biblical usage will not allow us to do this. For it is the conviction of the New Testament authors that the New Age promised in the Old Testament 
arrived with Jesus Christ, and that therefore, with his coming, the old age had begun to pass away, and the last days had dawned. Thus, Peter, on the day of Pentecost, quoted Joel's prophecy that in the last days, God would pour out his spirit on all flesh and declared that this prophecy had here and now been fulfilled. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, he said. In other words, the last days to which this prophecy referred to had come. Similarly, the letter to the Hebrews begins with an assertion that the God who had spoken in the past to our fathers through the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. They were ushered in by Jesus Christ, God's Son. So here, what follows in 2 Timothy 3, therefore, is a description of the present, not the future. Paul depicts the whole period elapsing between the first and second comings of Christ. They may get worse in the future. If you read on to verse 13 in chapter 3, it says some people will go from bad to worse. But even now, the times are bad and perilous and terrible. What Timothy is to understand about the last days is not that they are uniformly, continuously evil, but they will include perilous seasons. There will be a spasmodically kind of thing going on in this period where we will see sometimes these surges of really, really serious stuff. There will be terrible times in the last days. So let's just unpack that. In the message notes there, let me just talk to you about the truth of terrible times so that we can let this sink in and accept it. First, notice the phrase, mark this. And if you're following along, what does mark this mean? It means know, understand, and then in the notes there, I have you write in, accept and keep on accepting this. To understand, accept, and keep on accepting this. Paul's saying, look, Timothy, be very clear about this. Don't let your mind kind of like kid you and act like this will not happen in your lifetime. This stuff is already going on. There will be terrible times. Jesus told us, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. This stuff's real. And many of us go, well, if God's in control, why? And 2 Peter makes it quite clear that even though this world is in rebellion to God, that God is being patient. God is doing things, by the way. But that God is being patient so that no one will have to perish without a chance or hope to hear that there's a better way to live. And so these terrible times that are coming, notice this next thing. What does the word terrible mean? Terrible means difficult, dangerous, hard-to-bear times. Difficult, dangerous, hard-to-bear times times. Actually, this is used in the, there's, there's two demon-possessed men that Jesus encounters, and it actually is the word to use them, terrible. They were violent, and therefore there's this kind of uh, br- brutal kind of uh, raw reality that's going to happen in these times. Uh, look at 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. This was in the earlier section, of the previous letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. It says, now the Holy Spirit tells us clearly that in the last times, some will turn away from the true faith. They will follow deceptive spirits and teachings that come from demons. These people are hypocrites and liars, and their consciences are dead. So uh, that leads us to this next big idea that I want you to see. What makes them so terrible is this, is that they're caused by people 
under the influence of the devil. What's going to happen, friends, you say, like, what's, what's creating all these spasmodic, all these kind of terrible stuff? What's happening is, is that in our world, people are acting, they're holding on, they're choosing attitudes, they are demonstrating behaviors that are coming through human beings, but they're under the influence of something much bigger than themselves, the devil. Now, whenever I talk about the devil, I think about the fact that I'd never want to assume that in this room, everyone believes in the devil. And uh, I remember when I was, uh, you know, you guys let me go on this sabbatical, so I just did a lot of reviewing in my life. And one of the things that I remember reviewing is that in the days when I was a youth pastor, I went over to the home of a couple teenagers one day, and uh, they were pretty new to our church, and I really appreciated this family. And so I was quite surprised when the mother said, can I please speak with you? I said, sure. She said, I noticed in the newsletter that you guys mentioned the devil. And I think it was some kind of, hey, let's, let's be mindful that we have an enemy, that kind of thing. It wasn't like, the devil. I mean, it was like, you know, okay. So she said, you guys don't really believe there's a devil, do you? I said, as a matter of fact, I do. Uh, Jesus told us he's real. And the scripture is quite clear. It's not just some force. It's an actual spiritual being that once was one of the worship leaders in heaven who decided that he would be like God and take God's place and ascend to the heights. And he was thrown out of heaven. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And now he is completely involved in this world to disrupt, divide, and destroy what God has set about to do in this world. And friends, 1 John 5.19 says, we know that the whole world, it means the value system, it doesn't just mean every, is under the influence of the evil one. Now these are big things I'm talking about right now. But I guess I want to ask you is, if you and I are going to accept the truth of terrible times, we need to understand part of what is creating all this chaos. And you know what? The evil one is not equal with God. The evil one is a created being, not creator. He does not have the same power as God. 1 John 4, 4, greater is he that is in you, talking about the Lord as Holy Spirit, than he that is in the world. And so when we talk about this stuff, some people go, oh yeah, these forces are fighting and they're equal. They're not equal. Satan is a defeated foe. He was defeated at the cross, but his time is limited and he is angry and he definitely wants to stir up as much trouble as he can before he goes out. And I'm not, I hope I never sound casual about this. Friends, this is serious stuff. But notice that Paul says in one of his last meetings there in Acts 20, look at what he says uh, to the believers there. Uh, he says this, I know that false teachers like vicious wolves will come in among you after I leave, not sparing the flock. Even some men from your own group will rise up and distort the truth in order to draw a following. He says, look, I know that you know, Satan's going to use people to try and disrupt, divide, and destroy what God is doing. So what is God into? What is God's plan? You notice where I'm getting this, by the way. Some of you go like, like where did you come with the devil part, Jeff? Here's where I came up with. Look at the end of chapter 2. 
Look at what it says. It says, opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of who? The devil, who has taken them captive to do his will. Now, most of the time, Satan tries to work in such a way that we actually think it's our idea. But what happens is, is that his will is complete opposite of God's will. And what you make, what's God's will? Here's God's will. God's will is that all of us who have gone astray, all of us have. The Bible says we have all fallen short of God's original intended will. That through Jesus Christ coming to earth, dying on a cross, rising again, sending his Holy Spirit to now live in us, he wants to do two things. He wants to change us from the inside out by giving us Christ-like character. Not the same character we have just by trying and do-gooding. Brand new heart. Miraculous work of God has to take place. Friends, the Christian life is not just difficult, it's impossible. You and I cannot live the Christian life unless the Lord does something supernatural in our lives to give us a new heart and a new desire, a new character. Now, does that happen all at once? Do all of us live just like Christ every moment of every day? No, we don't. But we've been learning. What's the process? The process is learning how to become more and more like him in character, to let him change us from the inside out, not just to create a Christian image, which is what so many people think Christianity is, but to change us from the inside out, Christ-like character, and then why? To make us part of a new community. This is why, friends, so many people in the United States that say, well, I can just love God, and I don't need to be part of the church, is such an immature understanding of God's plan. God's plan is that not just to make us new people, but to make us part of a new community that now would serve his purpose in the world. We are his hands and feet. We are the ones that demonstrate his spirit to other people in the world. We are here to do the good he's called us to do and to proclaim Jesus Christ so that other people can become part of this new community because it's not just about us. It's about him. And you and I, when we understand that will, then now we begin to understand that Satan's into twisting all that. He's trying to get things turned in different directions and create all kinds of chaos and disorder. And friends, when he does that, it is powerful and it is obvious and it is evident. And so notice one more thing here, if you're following along. Inside the church, some have the form of godliness. Inside the church, there's going to be people that have the form of godliness, but notice that word means the appearance. That's, that's all they have. So there's going to be people you go, well, I'm a Christian, I profess, but you don't see anything supernaturally different on the inside of their character. And therefore, some of these characteristics that we see in verses 2 through 4 may still be going on. Counterfeit, phony kind of Christians. And that's who he's saying stay away from. That's who he's saying avoid. Is people that habitually profess one thing but live another the Bible says, is, do not have fellowship with people like that. Do not try and say, oh, we're all Christians, it's all good. No, no, because here's the deal. That kind of thing is not true. He doesn't say avoid people that are not Christians that are living like this because he wants us to care about those people. But he is saying, don't, don't let that stuff just go by without challenging and warning and, and trying to be 
clear with people. Know that even inside the church, there will be phony, counterfeit people that they have the form of godliness. They sing the same songs. They come to the same services. They know all the right words to say, but nothing ever gets changed on the inside. They never come to a knowledge of the truth about Jesus Christ and let his power change them. And this is what Christ came to do. He didn't just come to make us nicer people. He came to make us new people who are part of a new community, and it is totally a miracle of grace. This is what he wants to do. Notice one more thing, is that disordered love destroys the community God intends. Disordered love destroys the community that God intends let me just take a little time to talk about this. If you look down in the second gray box there, I tried to do the cliff notes of these verses here. What I want you to notice is what's the first phrase there? For peoples will be lovers of what? Self. Or lovers of themselves, as the NIV says. What's the last phrase there? Don't look at the third line, but the second line, the last phrase is lovers of pleasure rather than what? Lovers of God. Now, those are the bookends. And in between these 19 characteristics, you see that it all starts wrong. Notice it says, it's in the last days, what's going to make things so terrible is that people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. And then it goes on. And friends, it's a downhill slope from there. And what, what's the idea here is that somebody who goes, well, are we supposed to hate ourselves? No. But the idea of loving themselves means that they put themselves in first place. It means that that's their highest love. That that's what they put before God. That's what they put before other people. That's what makes them most happy. That's what makes their life spin. Now imagine these banners up here say, we believe God is calling us as a church to declare war on shallow Christianity, beginning with ourselves, and then love the Lord, love love one another, serve the world. Imagine next Sunday... We change the banners and it says, we believe God is calling us as a church to pursue selfish Christianity, beginning with ourselves. And then over here it says, love yourself. That's all it says. Sometimes, friends, if we're not careful, that is appealing to a lot of people following Christ today. But that's, that's the, it, the problem is the order. Some of you remember over the years that every once in a while I've got up here, embarrassed myself, and I've worn like a Mr. Rogers neighborhood uh, sweater. You guys seen that before? Where I wear that cardigan sweater, you know that one with buttons right down the middle and stuff like that? And I've talked about the fact that is if you don't get the order right, then things just don't go right, okay? And I, so I start sometimes with the first top buttonhole, and I'll button it to the middle, and then I'll just go, How's, how do I look, you know? And everybody laughs, you know, Jesse looking dumb and stuff like that. So the, the sweater, okay, the sweater is like that, and everybody can see that it's out of order. Now, that's one thing if I decide to look silly like that. But how many of us have noticed that if we get the order wrong with how we love and what we love, that it makes all kinds of chaos break out in families, all kinds of chaos break out even in a person's life because we were not made to be that way. And the Bible says that's what sin is. Sin is getting the order wrong. We love ourselves. Now, please, the Bible never says hate yourself, but there's teaching nowadays that says, you know, we're supposed to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but you can't do that until you love yourself first. That's a lie from the pit of hell, friends. You go after loving yourself first, you'll never get to loving the Lord. 
And here's the thing. The only way to love yourself properly is to love the Lord first and most because he'll teach you. And he'll teach you how to love other people differently. But if we get the order wrong, and friends, here's what I love about the cross. On the cross, we see Jesus getting the order right. And the Bible says he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. This is what he wants to do. He wants to change. And so here's what, here's what sin does. Here's what the evil one wants us to do. He wants us to get turned in on ourselves. And what Christ does is he turns us outward where we love him, we love other people, and we even love ourselves properly. But he wants to reverse that orbit. If you've ever seen a planet that gets the order right of its orbit, it is just chaos. And what Christ came to do is he came to change that. Think about this. The evil one put himself first. Then he shows up in the garden as a serpent. What does he try and get Adam and Eve to do? He says, you know, God told you, you know, not to eat from that fruit. You can eat from anything else. You know, he, I don't know what he was thinking because, you know, really he knows deep down that if you eat from that fruit, you're going to be a bigger and better person. I don't know what he's caring. Total bold-faced lie. What's he trying to do? Put yourself first. Look out for number one. And friends, when people do that, you know, no one's admitting to the lie of this. It creates terrible times terrible times. And so this is what we're going to probably live in. This is what it's going to mean to endure. But this is where we get a chance to live out a different character as a new community in a world that may be like this, but we get a chance to show a better way. And some people go, we're going to get eaten for lunch. Well, the Bible says, no, 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 no. It may get terrible and we may even lose our lives, but God's got Florida waiting for us. And he has a lot more, and he'll teach us even how to drive around Atlanta. And so, friends, this is what I want you to see, okay? Now, notice that how to respond to opposition as we bring this home, okay? Notice, in fact, if, I was thinking to myself, some of you talk to me about your situations with your wayward kids or things that are going on. And, man, I'm telling you what, I try and pray during the week because it seems like right now in this generation... There's just a number of people of every age that are less interested in Christ. And yet I believe God's doing something powerful in the midst of all that. And yet it depends on our attitude and our responsiveness even when people oppose us. So I've thought to myself, you know, some of you that are trying to pray, how do I deal with people that are giving me a hard time or opposing me even when I'm trying to set good boundaries and, and help them do good things? Verses 23 through 26 of chapter 2 might be great advice for you. And if you're following along in the notes, responding to opposition, we must be kind and gentle in the hope they'll come to know the truth. We must be kind and gentle in the hope that they come to know the truth. These are powerful verses. It says, look, those who oppose us, we must not respond in kind. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with what, friends? Good. And it doesn't just mean good deeds, but it means good attitudes, good heart, different spirit. Now, you, you, may, you know, every, I don't get a lot of these, but every once in a while you get an email. And I get a chance to practice this. That's a, that's a moment where, you know, because your flesh just wants to go, oh, is that what you think? Well, here's what I think, you know. Now, is that going to help anybody? And by the way, will they walk away going, wow, Jesus has really got a hold of Jeff? <laughs> no way. 
I won't be Christ-like character. That would be all of a sudden where it's obvious that all I have is the form of godliness. By the way, godliness means God is at the center. And God wants to teach us this whole new life where God is at the center. And so we need to learn how to respond with kindness and gentleness, where even though what they say may hurt us or it may be hard for us to take, we may disagree, but even the way we disagree, we need to do it in a more civil way. Friends, please hear me. Part of what is discrediting Christianity right now in our country is that people are mad. And people are angry when they talk, and they're condescending, and we got to be careful about that. we got to be people that even, you know, if we've got to talk, to a wayward kid, or we've got to talk to someone who's telling us that we're, you know, wrong and all that kind of stuff. How do we respond back? We've got to respond back with the right tone. This is one of the things I love about Jesus. And then when Jesus, even when he was upset, he did it with tears. He did it with concern for people. God has not given us a spirit of fear or timidity, but a spirit of power, love, and a sound mind, self-discipline. We can do this. But we need to really make sure we understand how important it is when we are being opposed. Second thing is, am I letting God's truth and power make me godly? Am I really, you know, we talked about how the fact is that even in a room like this, there may be people that are counterfeit. You've gotten into a whole version of Christianity that's all about appearances, all about having a form of godliness. Well, I'll go to church this week so that I can you know, just you know, make sure that people think I'm a good guy, but I'm still going to live totally self-centered in my character the rest of the week, or at least a big part of it. Come on. That's not the real deal for any of us. And I don't know about you, but I'm tempted like that all the time. Is that not the pull we talked about last week that we need to continually cleanse ourselves from? That we need to continually resubmit ourselves, like Steve said in his prayer, to the Lord, to rededicate, to really be available. Worship is adoring the Lord so that he can humble and shape us into a different character. And yet, if we don't let his power change us, we'll never be able to be the people he wants us to be. But notice God has provided this power. Look at 2 Peter 1, verse 3. I love these verses here. Look at this. It says, by his divine power... God has given us everything we need for living what, friends? A godly life, a God-centered life instead of a Jeff-centered life. We have received all of this by coming to know Christ, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. So has God given us everything we need, even the power to live the Christian life? Yes, he has. In Christ, what got released on the cross was a brand new power. Not just power for itself, its own sake, power to live a godly life. That means that even though Jeff has lived a totally ungodly life in the past, where it was all about him, that now that I've met Christ, each day, as I give myself to him, as I love him, as I focus on him, he can start to make me more God-centered. Oh, man, the world's longing to see that. I know my wife is. And so that can happen. This is what we're talking about. He's given us the power. So therefore, like for instance, when we're tempted, we decide to go our own way. We say, I, I, can't, I can't obey God. Can't or won't. The Lord can help us. But are we letting him change us? Are we letting this make us more tender, more humble, more real, more genuine? Last thing here is that responding to opposition means to avoid arguing and divisive people and run with the runners. It means to avoid arguing and divisive people. And as we saw last week, join with those who call on the Lord out of the same 
mindset, out of a pure heart, a pure heart meaning not morally perfect, but one, a person that wants one thing above all else, and that is to know the Lord. Run with people like that. So part of what we try and do as a church family, friends, is it not when we gather here? Are we just trying to have an emotional, spiritual experience when we gather? Are we trying to learn how to become more like Jesus and become a community that lets Jesus have his way, not only with us individually, but with us as a church? This is what we're learning. And Paul says, yes, there will be terrible times, but you don't have to worry because you're going to maybe drive through them, but there's something waiting on the other side that's worth it. And also, even when you drive through them, you can endure differently because we have Christ in us, the hope of glory. This is so good. So we are trying to think, how can, we, how can we practice this today? If God comes into our lives through trusting in Jesus Christ and that he came to do this supernatural, life-changing work from the inside out, now that we're turned out, how do we practice that? So today is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And what I want you to see is Hebrews 13, 3. Look at this verse. It's, it's powerful. It's writing to people that are already going through difficult times. And uh, let's read it together. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. One of the ways now we practice being the new community is that we don't just care about ourselves. We don't just live for ourselves, but we learn how to care about other people that are going through it and who need our encouragement. So how did the early church encourage? How did they care for one another when they were having to endure tough things already themselves? Two ways that we see quite clearly. They prayed for each other and they shared with each other. Sometimes by offerings, if they were going through a famine, they would send money and say, here, can we help carry some of the load with you? And they bore each other's burdens. And what we want to do is we want to do that similarly as we end this service today. So if you're following along in the notes, here's the prayer. We can pray. Lord, teach me to pray for and share with my persecuted brothers and sisters. Teach me to pray for and share with my persecuted brothers and sisters. Now, you can put away your notes, but would you mind pulling out this card that hopefully was on everybody's seat when you walked in? I'm really conscious that some of you may be here and you're not yet a follower of Christ, and so you may be feeling a little awkward about this part. Please know we're just so glad you're here, and you can still participate in this. You can still put some thought to what we're going to talk about. But this may be one of those days where the Lord's been trying to say to you, look, I want you to come to a knowledge of the truth. I want you to turn to me. I want you to trust me so you can follow me. But anyway, each one of you has a card. And on this card, we, what we did is we looked at the 10 most persecuted nations for Christians. So you have one of those 10. And it talks about, again... Uh, some information, and for these next few moments, what we want to ask you to do is would you just read this over and just let it soak in. We're going to pray in just a minute, and I'll show you how to do that, but just read this and say, Lord, I want to practice Hebrews 13, 3, and that I remember other people that right now are in prison for your name. They're being mistreated because they believe in you, and they're going through terrible times. Show me how to remember them. Take the time to do that.
now I want to ask you, on each one of your cards, there should be some bullet points. And you may say, you know, I don't know how to pray. Well, just maybe pray those sentences or pray those ideas for this particular nation where there are Christians. Pray for those Christians. And um, as you do, just trust that the Lord's taking our prayer right here and he's connecting it to people in that nation to strengthen them, to endure, and to be somehow lifted up and encouraged. Take time to do that, and then I'll close this in prayer. Lord, we want to pray as a church family because we're coming to understand that your plan, your will is to make us a new community of people who run with you together and pray for these others that are experiencing imprisonment and mistreatment and other difficulties that come with that separated from their families, heartache, We want to pray, O Lord, that as they go through these terrible times, you'll give them the power to endure, that you'll give them that new spirit, and that they will know again and again your faithfulness. I do want to thank you that this weekend we learned that Kenneth Bay, after two years of imprisonment in North Korea, was released. And we pray for one of his cellmates, Kim Jong-uk, that's in North Korea, that's been given a life sentence. And we pray that he might also be released. But we want to pray, God, show us how to learn to pray as a church together for others. Turn us outward. Show us how to care. And now, God, we pray that this offering that we give, those of us that participate in this offering, that you'll take it somehow and you'll help those in refugee camps that have fled from northern Iraq And we pray that the people of ISIS would come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who's taken them captive to do his will and that they might come to know the truth, Jesus Christ, in a life-changing way. Do great things in the middle of the darkness, God. We ask this for your sake. Amen.